I'm calling this chapter Disappointment with God. And I was reluctant to even name that because I am so detached from that word. Because disappointment with God suggests that he may have done something wrong or inadequate or incomplete or insufficient. And that's never true. But we would be lying to ourselves if we said that no one ever experiences disappointment with God. Job chapter 19, beginning in verse 1, it says, Then Job answered and said, How long will you torment my soul and break me in pieces with words? These ten times you've reproached me. You're not ashamed that you've wronged me. And if indeed I have erred, my error remains with me. If indeed you exalt yourselves against me and plead my disgrace against me, Know then that God has wronged me and has surrounded me with his nets. If I cry out concerning wrong, I'm not heard. If I cry aloud, there's no justice. He has fenced up my way so that I cannot pass, and he has set darkness in my paths. He has stripped me of my glory and taken the crown from my head. He breaks me down on every side, and I am gone. My hope he is uprooted like a tree. He has also kindled his wrath against me, and he counts me as one of his enemies. His troops come together, and they build up their road against me. They encamp all around my tent. He has removed my brothers far from me, and my acquaintances are completely estranged from me. My relatives have failed, and my close friends have forgotten me. Those who dwell in my house and my maidservants count me as a stranger. I'm an alien in their sight. I call my servant and he gives me no answer. I beg him with my mouth. My breath is offensive to my wife. This should be a great Valentine verse right here. No, that's not the one you want to quote when you give your wife or your husband a Valentine. And I am repulsive to the children of my own body. Even young children despise me. I arise and they speak against me. All my close friends abhor me. And those whom I love have turned against me. My bone clings to my skin, to my flesh. And I've escaped by the skin of my teeth. Have pity on me. Have pity on me, O You, my friends, for the hand of God has struck me. Why do you persecute me as God does and are not satisfied with my flesh? Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book, that they were engraved on a rock with an iron pen and lead forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives And he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another, how my heart yearns within me. If you should say, how shall we persecute him, since the root of the matter is found in me? Be afraid of the sword for yourselves, for wrath brings the punishment of the sword, that you may know that there is a judgment. As we've studied the book of Job, and as the chapters unfold, we discover that the book is complex. And the subject of suffering is complex. And in our study, we've been introduced to a figure who is seen by God as the greatest human being. In all of the East, his prosperity was great and his adversity was even greater. Remember, the book began with an accusation and an attack by Satan. Job is perplexed. He doesn't know about the attack and the accusation of Satan. We're introduced to a group of accusers, Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar. 
And according to Job's accusers, the problems in Job's life and the sufferings in Job's life and the difficulties in Job's life are all because there's something wrong in Job's life. But in chapter 2, verse 3, God made it clear that he has no cause for afflicting Job. That Job is neither a hypocrite, he's not a gross sinner. And later in the book we discover that God rejects the speech of Elihu in chapter 38 verses 1 and 2. And the three other accusers in chapter 42 verse 7. Job, remember, has appealed for sympathy. He's appealed for a chance to confront God. He's appealed for to his basic integrity and his faith in God. He appeals to die in chapter 3. He appeals to die in chapter 6. And then again in chapter 7. And it can become overwhelming. When we are confronted by people. Their pain and their problems and their circumstances are, are so overwhelming. And when people express the desire to die, for many of us, this puts us in a a tailspin. But remember, Job was suffering enormous physical affliction. Friends and neighbors were abusing him. He felt like God had abandoned him. And all of these elements, again, make a recipe for disappointment. I think if we're honest, each and every one of us can say that we've experienced disappointment. It was the writer Ambrose Bierce with insight and sarcasm. He, he had a dictionary and he, would make up, he wouldn't make up words. He would just simply redefine them. And in the dictionary under year, he has this entry. A period of 365 disappointments. I have a friend who spent much of his young life in foster care. And I've been dealing with uh, some elements and issues of families that have difficulties and trials. And when I was talking to my friend about his own experiences in foster care, he was in 22 different foster care homes. And I said, there must have been some trials, some Tribulations, some difficulties. And he said something remarkable. He said, every single home I ever was placed in was better than the home that I left. I said, what do you mean? He said, every single foster care home that I ever went to, no one ever tried to kill me. No one ever pointed a gun at me and no one ever tried to shoot me. Can you imagine that's the standard? That's the standard. The standard is, if I go into your house and you don't try to kill me, I feel pretty good. You can imagine. For many people, disappointment can be deep and severe in your own mind. You can race through the scenario of difficulties and disappointments, whether it's physical or financial or emotional. Some people think that having bad parents is better than having no parents at all. And some people think that insensitive and abusive friends are better than having no friends at all. But anyone who has ever lived a life of prolonged and sustained abuse or depression or misery or loss understands about this special kind of isolation And so, there doesn't seem to be any relief in sight for Job. There doesn't seem to be any hope. And a redeemer who, so so again, when you you read this this passage and, and you think about how Job felt, that Job is thinking that God doesn't want to have anything to do with Job. That there doesn't seem to be any relief inside. God won't answer his prayers. There's no hint of encouragement. But there's this glimmer. There's this tiny glimmer of hope that wells up inside of him. As he thinks about standing one day on the earth with a redeemer. Job knows that in order for him to have any chance, someone's going to have to advocate for him. A redeemer who could declare his innocence. And so Job holds out hope in the distant future. 
Job wants to respond to Bildad's speech of chapter 18 that we went over the last time. He's overwhelmed and crushed by Bildad's hurtful and painful words, but he's still convinced that a redeemer is going to vindicate him. So again in verse 1 and 2, then Job answered and said, how long will you torment my soul and break me in pieces with words? Remember Job's friend's counsel. The reason why you're suffering is because you have unconfessed sin in your life. The reason why you have the pain and the problems and the difficulties in your life is because there's something wrong with you. Think about it, Job. You're about to meet God, so it would make sense that you clear your conscience and just confess that there's something wrong with you. Now, I want you to think about this because in their ignorance, the only meaningful advice that they could give was clear your conscience, prepare for death. And their words didn't bring comfort. Advice is supposed to to produce helpful insight, not anguish. And their advice didn't comfort him. Rather, their advice was designed to crush him. So when are we most likely to be disappointed? I'm going to suggest to you that disappointment comes... When we expect one thing and we get another. Job expects comfort. Job expects support. Job expects sympathy. But he's unfulfilled. Disappointment makes its rounds. In the form of disillusionment and letdown and dissatisfaction and discontentment. And so in verse 3 when it says, these ten times you've reproached me, you are not ashamed that you have wronged me. It's an idiomatic expression. When he says ten times, we don't go back through the first 18 chapters and go, okay, this was one time and this is two times and this is three times. It's sort of an idiomatic expression that means... A whole lot. Like in Genesis 31.7. Job rebukes his friends. They should be embarrassed. To offer such hurtful advice. Over and over again. To someone in such desperate need. Job's complaint in effect is. Quote, you have humiliated and dealt harshly with me. You have humiliated and dealt harshly with me. Over And over and over again. And he says in verse 4, And if indeed I have erred, my error remains with me. Listen to what he's saying. Job has a conversation. He says, I'm going to concede that even if I am guilty, without admitting guilt, But even if I am guilty of sin, even if I am hiding sin, how in the world could it be a threat to you? Yes, Job's friends insisted that Job's suffering is due to his sin, and that if Job doesn't confess his sin or admit that his sin, then somehow something is going to go wrong. But in effect, what Job is saying is this. This is my concern. Just... Please stop the attacks. I want you to think it through that even if you're right, and I don't think that you are, can we just back off just for a moment with the attacks? Job doesn't need false accusations and insults. He needs comfort. He needs support. He needs help. Bildad labels Job's problem sin. Job says, okay, if my problem is sin, could you point to it? Could you show it to me? Could you expose it? You're so quick to accuse me of all of these things. You're so quick to accuse me of all of these things. But can you point to something specific? In verse 5 he says, if indeed you exalt yourselves against me and plead my disgrace against me. Job is saying, you put yourself on the top in order for me to be on the bottom. How do we manage to confuse crushing with comfort? And when you pause and you think about it, you think about the people in your life, and you think about the people in your circumstances, and you think about the people who are struggling with all kinds of difficulties. 
whether it's drug or alcohol abuse, whether it's marital problems, whether it's physical or financial problems, whether it's emotional problems, whatever the problems might be, Job's friends have made Job's case almost like a personal vendetta. The friends persecute and prosecute him as if they're God. In other words, knowing, understanding everything that's involved. And remember, for those of you who've been following along and who have been here since the beginning, have any of Job's friends read the first two chapters of the book? No. Are they aware of what's going on in heaven? Are they aware of God's heart towards Job? Are they aware of Satan's sinister accusations? No. If Job declares, and so, so here, here's what he's basically saying. If God declares that Job is guilty, Job is in effect saying, look, if God comes down from heaven and says, you're guilty, I'm willing to be guilty. If God comes down from heaven and says, you're innocent, I'm willing to be innocent. Now, what is interesting at this point, has God rendered a guilty verdict against Job? The answer is no, he hasn't. It's always a bad idea to play God in another person's life. It's always a bad idea to pretend that you're the Holy Spirit. It's always a bad idea to say to people, I know what God would have you do, when in fact you don't. The only thing that you're safe in saying is, here's what God would have you to do. If you don't know Jesus, accept him. If there's sin in your life, confess it. If you want to know God, seek him with all of your heart. And the Bible promises that you will find him. Job's friends are not playing God by their persecution. They are presuming to know the conclusion of God's mind by pronouncing him guilty. That's why it's always a bad idea. It's always a bad idea to say, what rhymes with well starts with an H and is where you're going to go if you don't change your ways. It's a little premature to threaten people with hell. Don't get me wrong. I'm not even for a moment suggesting that hell isn't real. Hell is very real. And the person who talks about it more than anyone else is Jesus McKenna says, quote, It is bad enough to persecute people in the name of religion, but it is unforgivable to pronounce them guilty before God does, unquote. We should be reluctant to pronounce a person's guilt when God hasn't done so. By the way, will God render a fair judgment to everyone in every case? The answer is yes. I think that the vast majority of our conversation has to be, on what basis does God render a judgment? He seems to render a judgment based on one of two things. Your life and everything that you've done, or Jesus and everything that he has done. So on what basis do you want God to render a judgment in your life? On the basis of you and everything that you've done, or on the basis of Jesus and everything that he's done? Remember, Bildad compared Job's life to a light that had gone out in chapter 18, verses 5 through 6, to a trapped traveler in verses 7 through 10. And Bildad compared Job to a criminal being pursued in verses 11 through 15, and an uprooted tree in verses 16 through 21 in in the last chapter. And so in the last chapter, all of these accusations have been made, and now Job is going to respond to them. Before he does, I just want to say a word about false comfort and true comfort. Remember what false comfort is. False comfort is that kind of comfort that causes a people or a person not to believe in God, not to rely on God, not to trust God, or to disobey God. In other words, it's always going to be false comfort if you say, 
you know, it doesn't really matter what the Bible says, and it doesn't really matter what God says, and it doesn't really matter what Jesus says, because in the end, he's, he's a loving God, and, and he's just going to make everything right. Uh, false comfort is always false when it invites someone to not believe what's right about God. As a matter of fact, you'll remember that when Abraham departed, when the Lord instructed him in in Genesis chapter 12, verse 4, he said, leave this place and go to a land that I'm going to show you. Leave your family, leave your friends, leave your job. And God promised to bless Abraham. He said, I'm going to bless you, but I need you to do something. I need you to leave this place. I need you to leave your family. I need you to travel to a new place. And in the new place that I am going to show you, I'm going to make you great. Now, in that instruction that God gives to Abraham, there's a mirror for our own life. Because for every single person who's ever known Jesus as Lord and Savior, there's an invitation that God makes. He invites you to leave the world that you grew up in, to leave the sin and to leave the rebellion and the disobedience and to walk now in a direction of light instead of darkness. And so there is this sense in which God calls us to walk away from the world that we used to know. Job's friends don't seem to be able to feel his anguish or understand his suffering. And sometimes we as Christians quickly forget what it was like to live in a world of darkness and wickedness and emptiness and pain. We forgot what it was like to be informed by our lust, informed by our thinking, informed by our desires. And then God changes all of that. And he gives us a new heart and new information. And so we come to that section in verses 6 through 12 where Job is feeling deeply disappointed. Let's read it quickly in verses 6 through 12. He write, he says, Know then that God has wronged me and has surrounded me with his net. If I cry out concerning wrong, I'm not heard. If I cry aloud, there is no justice. He's fenced up my way so that I cannot pass. And he has set darkness in my paths. He's stripped me of my glory. He's taken the crown from my head. He breaks me down on every side. And I am gone. My hope. He is uprooted like a tree. He has also kindled his wrath against me. And he counts me as one of his enemies. And look in verse 12 when he says, his troops come together and build up their road against me. The image, the image is like, like um, imagine Humvees and gigantic tractors and gigantic pieces of machinery that's digging a road. Imagine an army that is equipped to assault a gigantic fortress. And they come upon Job's little tent. In order to wage war, they encamp all around my tent. Job gives seven vivid pictures of the trials, the difficulties, and the pain. Just look at them quickly. Number one, Job feels like a trapped animal at the end of verse 6 when he says, And he has surrounded me with his net. The picture is of a trapped animal. He feels like God has set the trap. It isn't like his friends have tricked him. And he doesn't seem to mention that there is a wicked enemy who is out to destroy him. He feels like it's God who has wronged him for either setting the trap or allowing the trap to be set. And I know, I know, I know that you know people who feel exactly the same way. How could God allow me 
to meet this person? Or how could he allow me to experience this abuse? How could he allow me to go, grow up in a home where I had to deal with this or I had to deal with that? How, how could God, what was God thinking? And number two, Job feels wronged. Like an innocent person being dragged into court to address the accusations for crimes in verse 7. I cry out concerning wrong, but I'm not heard. It's as if the police pull you over, they charge you with crimes, they drag you down into jail... You stand before a judge, but there's no one. No one will speak for you. No one will advocate for you. No one will vouch for you. No one will support you. There's no mediator to defend him. He feels like he's been unjustly charged and there's no remedy for him. And number three, he feels like a Finston traveler. In verse 7, he says, if I cry out concerning wrong, I'm not heard. If I cry aloud, there's no justice. Verse 8, he's fenced up my way so that I cannot pass. The image is of a person who's under a travel advisory. Imagine you're coming from the ski slopes on I-70 and there's a gigantic avalanche that has crushed the road and the traffic is backed up and you can't go forward. The picture is one where Job feels like God has walled up the passageway and he can't get through. In addition, not only can he not get through, but it's pitch black. The path that is before him, he can't see his way. God has removed whatever light was there in order to mark the way. Job feels like he's traveling blind. There's no psalmist to say, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light to my path. Job wants desperately to be able to say that, hey, in the midst of all of this blackness and darkness and disappointment, I need to be able to see and I can't see. I'm traveling blind. And number four, Job's pain, his anguish, his suffering has left him like a king who's been removed from his throne in verse nine. He stripped me of my glory and taken the crown from my head. There was a time when Job was the king of his world. He had a wonderful tent and wonderful children. Great employees and a great job. He was admired not by tens of people, not by dozens of people, not by scores of people. He is admired by hundreds of people and hundreds of people have a job because of him. He's enjoyed wealth and blessing and peace and prosperity and honor and it's all gone. It's all been stripped away. The blessing gone, the honor gone, the royal robes in which he used to wear are now rags. The crown that he used to wear is now like a crown of thorns. Ooh, does this sound familiar to anyone? In a very real way, we have a picture of our Savior who leaves heaven and glory and he comes to the ignominy of being on the planet earth. Job is reduced to thorns and ashes. And number five, Job feels like a condemned building in verse 10. He breaks me down on every side and I am gone. The picture is, have you ever driven by a a place that was dark and empty and it looked like it hadn't been lived in for hundreds of years? And you see signs posted all around it. Condemned, condemned, condemned. Do not enter. Job says, that's exactly how I feel. Like I am a structure that's under condemnation. And that God, God, God himself is going to reduce me to rubble. My hope, he is uprooted like a tree. Number six, Job feels like his hope has been taken away from him. Do you remember what it says in chapter 18? 
Verse 16, his roots are dried out below and his branch withers above. Remember Bildad said, you remind me of a tree that doesn't have any life in it. And it should be chopped up for kindling wood. Job feels exactly like that tree. That it used to blossom in due season. That its flowers would produce fruit. And its fruit would produce nourishment and encouragement. But now he feels like a tree that can no longer be fruitful. And number seven, Job compares his life to a city under siege by a fierce and recalcitrant enemy. In verses 11 and 12, he's kindled his wrath against me and he counts me as one of his enemies. His troops come together. The the picture again is God has amassed an army to come against him. That Job is his enemy. And he describes the Lord like a warrior who's going to wage war against Job. Job says, I feel like there's a battle that's being waged against me. And I am the object of his wrath. And I am the focus of his conquest. If you felt that way, it seems to make pretty, pretty good sense that you would have a little bit of disappointment with God. When are you going to be disappointed with, with God? When you feel isolated and alone. Look what it says in verse 13. He's removed my brothers far from me. Family gone. My acquaintance are completely estranged from me. This isolation, this detachment from reality... And from humanity, my relatives have failed, it says in verse 14. And my close relatives have forgotten me. You see, it's one thing to not be able to rely on your family. That creates a hole and an emptiness and a deep difficulty. So Job is dealing with two things. He feels like he has no support from his family. He feels like he has no support from the Lord. Verse 15, those who dwell in my house and my maidservants count me as a stranger. I'm an alien in their sight. Has everything gone? Apparently there's a, there's a few people left. I call my servant, but he gives no answer. Why? Because what's going to happen Does Job have the ability to punish him, discipline him, or fire him? Imagine you're a boss. You're used to giving orders and hearing people obey those orders. And now you find yourself in a hospital or in hospice care. And you are hurt. And you have no support. And you used to be able to ring the buzzer and the nurse would come, but you ring and you ring and you ring and no one comes. I beg him with my mouth, he says. Verse 17, I love this for Valentine's Day. My breath is offensive to my wife. By the way, wives, if you need your husband to brush, just tape this passage on his toothbrush. And I am repulsive to the children of my own body. It's a picture of alienation, isolation, loneliness. Here's the big picture. What happens when the circumstances in your life cause people to recoil in horror rather than reach out in hope? That's what's happening. When people show up, Job is in effect saying, everybody looks at me and goes, wow. So sorry. Sorry. We'll talk later. Sorry. I don't know what I can do. I don't know how I can help. I don't, I don't know how I could offer anything in your circumstance. 
He says in verse 18, even young children despise me. I arise and they speak against me. Imagine again, in horror and difficulty, even little children are horrified when they see you. They scream and run away. All my close friends abhor me in verse 19. And those whom I love have turned against me. My bone clings to my skin and to my flesh. This is a picture of dehydration and emaciation. Remember his body is covered with boils. He is physically afflicted. And I have escaped by the skin of my teeth. The issue being... I don't even understand how I'm holding on to life. In verse 21, have pity on me. Have pity on me. Oh, you, my friends, for the hand of God has struck me. Again, this is the picture of emptiness, of brokenness, of complete dependence. And the fact that God's hand seems against him He implores his friends, given everything that you understand about what's going on in my life, could I have just one ounce of compassion? Just a little bit of sensitivity. I want you to understand something at this point. Their theology won't allow it. Their theology won't allow it. I, I, I had a caller on my radio program today. The, the caller called and said, Mr. Dracy, you seem to be pretty smart. You have a lot of knowledge about the Bible, but are you filled with the Holy Spirit? Have you been baptized in the Holy Spirit? And do you have revelation knowledge of God? I go, yeah, I think I've been baptized in the Holy Spirit, and I think I have a pretty good handle on it. Well, then why don't you believe in divine healing? I do believe in divine healing. Why don't you believe that God heals everyone and he wants everyone healed every single time? And I said, are you suggesting because I don't embrace your view that God heals everyone every time that the reason is because I don't understand revelation? Are you talking about a kind of a revelation that's distinct and separate from what the Bible says? You see... When you have a theology that everyone has to be healed every time and you ask the question that I asked this person, well, if God wants people healed every single time, then, then everybody would be healed every single time. But how do you explain the passage in 1 Timothy where Paul tells Timothy to take a little wine for his stomach's sake? Why does he leave Epaphrodites hurt? If this is true, how do you explain Job's situation? I asked him. If God wants people healed every single time, then why aren't they healed every single time? And you know what he said to me? He said, because there's something wrong with them. And I said, did you hear what you just said? I'm going to repeat it because I I, I want you to be shocked and embarrassed by what you just said. You see, when you have a theology that hurting people aren't welcome in your church, then hurting people won't come to your church. And if you believe that sick people will, will get well no matter what, then eventually sick people aren't going to feel welcome. And if you believe that you have to be rich all the time, then guess what? If you're suffering financially, then guess what? You're not going to feel welcome at a church. Where, you're, where their deep, 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 profound belief is that if you're sick, it's your fault. And if you're not rich, well, guess what? You're either lazy or stupid or you're not walking in the promises of God. The friends of Job are faced with a difficult problem. They have to choose between their theology and their friend. Have you ever been in that situation? That you had to choose between your theology and your friend? That if for whatever reason you offered comfort or support or sensitivity or compassion that other people would look at you funny? 
Well, what if you care about that person? Or, or what if you reach out to that person? What if, you, what if you actually go to an AIDS hospice? And what if you hold hands with a person who's dying of AIDS and you pray for them and you love them and you minister to them and you serve them? Job has plummeted to the depths of physical pain and emotional despair and spiritual futility and relational loneliness. And so in verse 22, he says, why do you, why do you persecute me as God does and are not satisfied with my flesh? It's his way of saying... I understand and accept that God in his grace and his wisdom and his mercy and his total knowledge and understanding, are there times when for reasons that I don't completely understand that God is disciplining me. I understand and accept that God has the wisdom and the ability to discipline me, but why would you? Are you not satisfied with my flesh? One author writes, quote, Job closed this part of his defense by appealing to his friends for pity. Verse 24, God was against him. His family and his friends had deserted him. He's left with three intimate friends who are now pursuing him like a wild beast after their prey. He's saying, can't you just stop? Can't you just try to help me? Why do you have such a hard heart? And so look what he says in verse 23. Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. That they were engraved on a rock with an iron pen and lead forever. Or put on a hard drive. Or put up in the cloud where people could go and get it eventually at some particular point. Here's part of the point. Job says, I wish, I wish that we could write this in a book. Why? Is is he talking about the book of Job? I'm going to suggest to you that it isn't so much that he's talking about the book of Job, but he's looking into a future hope that's denied to him in the present. He's saying, everything like this is happening right now. I wish it could all be written down so that someone a month from now, a year from now, a hundred years from now, a thousand years from now could pick up this book and read it and understand Because the hope that I'm being denied in the present, I wonder if that kind of hope exists somewhere in the future. Maybe if my story survives. Maybe if the answer doesn't come in this generation. But is there a generation where where the answer will come? Think about where you are. You're in a church reading the book of Job. And he says in verse 25, listen to what he says. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth. Whether his story is written in a book or not, whether the present circumstances don't reflect a future hope, look what he says with joy. I know that my Redeemer lives. And this is the passage that's quoted more than any other passage in the book of Job. You probably sing the song. I know that my Redeemer lives. The NIV and the New King James capitalize it. There's a big R there. I know that my Redeemer lives. Do you know what the Hebrew word is? Goel. Goel. Job is hurt. His disappointment is real. His frustration is real. Question to you. Is his hope real? I'm going to suggest to you that the answer is yes. He is frustrated. He has no one to plead his case. In the earlier speech, in chapter 16, he wanted an advocate. And he now suggests that if he has to die without facing God, his kinsman redeemer will take his case to confront God. And by the way, that's what a goel is. It's a kinsman 
redeemer. It's a close relative. The Goel was the near relative who functioned in the role of a family member in crisis. Every family member has what, what I call a responsible relative. It's the person that you call when you say, I'm in trouble and I need your help. You know who that is. You know that it's probably you. You're probably that person. You're the person that people go to typically when things aren't going right. In the ancient world, if a person lost their property, or if someone was murdered in their family, or if there was a lack of progeny or offspring, like it says in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 through 10, the Goel was the member of the family who could come in and make things right. And if the issue was a civil matter, then the Goel had the right to redeem property or people. Or if a person was sold into slavery, they could buy them back. If a person was killed or murdered, it was his responsibility to avenge their blood if they they were unjustly killed or murdered. Warren Wiersbe points out that the near relative could offend blood in Deuteronomy 19.6, reclaim and restore a brother's lost property, Leviticus 25.23, set his brother free from slavery, um, Leviticus 25.25, the kinsman redeemer could go to court on behalf of a wronged relative, Proverbs 23.10, and you all remember in the book of, Bo, uh, in the book of Ruth, Remember the story of Ruth, how her husband has died and she's a Moabite and she comes back to the area of Bethlehem and Boaz is her kinsman, her redeemer, her Goel. He's the one who's willing and able to rescue Ruth and give her a new life and a new land. Job is saying, I know that my Goel lives the one who will give me a new life in a new land. This is a picture of Christ. This is a picture of God as redeemer. Job feels wrong. Job knows that God is sovereign in his suffering and despite his suffering. He knows that his redeemer lives. You know, commentators, interestingly enough, argue. I have 26 commentaries on this This book alone. The scholars break out their scholarship and they say, is this a man? Is this a close relative of Job? Or is this a picture of God? My answer, the ones who say that it's a man are right. The ones who say that it's God are right. They're both right. This particular Goel is a man who is also God. This is the same Redeemer that you have. And you might think, well, Jesus isn't a close relative. Oh, yes, he is. Who is Jesus' father? Well, God is his father, but as a human being, was his mother Mary a direct descendant of Adam? Yes. Are you a direct descendant of Adam? You see, the same Adam who produces Jesus produced each and every one of you. Adam is your father. Enoch is your father. Noah is your father. And guess what? I lose your genealogy from there and because there's three guys, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. You might be related to any of them or all of them. The truth Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Judah and David. All of biblical history is pushing forward and forward to the person of Jesus. Job has called upon God to be his judge in chapter 13. His witness in chapter 16. His advocate in chapter 16 verse 21. And now in verse 19 he says he's my redeemer. And he expresses the belief that he's alive. He's alive and he's ready to take up Job's cause. 
even though Job might die. One translation puts it this way. But I know that my vindicator lives. In the end, he will testify on earth. That is, after my skin will have been peeled away. This might be a picture of decomposition. But I will behold God while still in my flesh. I myself and not another would behold him. With my own eyes, my heart pines for him. I know that my Redeemer lives. My heart longs for him. My heart longs for the person that God will provide, who is my close relative, who will vindicate me. He will return to the courtroom. He will have a face-to-face meeting with God. Charles Spurgeon puts it this way. He says, the morrow of Job's comfort lies in that little word, my, my Redeemer. And in the fact that the Redeemer lives. Oh, to get hold of a living Christ. We must get a property in him before we can enjoy him. So a Redeemer who not redeems me. An avenger who never stand up for my blood. Of what avail were such. Rest not content until my faith you can say. Yes, I cast myself upon my living Lord. And he is mine. It's, it's Spurgeon's way of saying Jesus is mine. My, my, my past is in him. My forgiveness is in him. My fellowship and friendship is in him. My future is in him. And so in verse 26 when he says, And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I will see God. Do you understand what an amazing statement that is? Where in the world did he get this? Remember, There's no Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, or Deuteronomy. What evidence does he have that would prompt Job to say such an outlandish thing? Is this really about a resurrection? Again, Spurgeon, quote, Mark the subject of Job's devout anticipation. I shall see God. He does not say... I shall see the saints, though doubtless that would be untold felicity or happiness. But I shall see God, not the, the program on Channel 2 or the CW. It is not I shall see the pearly gates. I sh- shall behold the walls of jasper. I shall see the crowns of gold. He says, I shall see God. This is the sum and the substance of heaven. This is the joy that's set before all believers. Isn't that good? John White writes, faith isn't a feeling. It's not even the feeling that something is going to happen in answer to our prayers. Faith may be easier to exercise when such feelings are present. Nevertheless, nevertheless, feelings of that sort never constitute faith. Faith is a response on our part, the obedient response of our wills to who God is and what he says, unquote, And in verse 27, whom I shall see for myself and my eyes shall behold and not another. How my heart yearns within me. Now think about that. I'm going to see God. God's going to know the truth. (laughs) Job believed in a personal resurrection. Whom I shall see for myself. He's talking about the eyes of faith. And sometimes it's a metaphor for death. It's like in the Hebrew world. When you go to sleep. You see God. Great men in the past have given great speeches. I remember Dr. Martin Luther King. Remember in his famous speech. He says I've been to the top of the mountain. And I've seen the other side. Job climbs up that kind of a mountain. And he begins to see Into the future. George Frederick Handel composed an oratorio, Messiah, in 24 days. A servant came in while he was writing the Hallelujah Chorus. And he found the composer weeping, copious tears. And when Handel could finally speak, he told the servant, I think I see all heaven before me and the great God himself. That's the hallelujah chorus. 
I know that my Redeemer lives. And if you should say in verse 28, How shall we persecute him, since the root of the matter is found in me? Be afraid of the sword for yourselves, for wrath brings the punishment of the sword, that you may know that there is a judgment. Here's what Job is saying. I know that my Redeemer lives. I know that I'm going to heaven. I know that I'm going to see God. I know that I'm going to experience vindication and exoneration. Does it make sense for you to continue to persecute me? Does it make sense since I am going to go to heaven and since God is going to make this right, I may die before you die, but make no mistake about it. If you're accusing me unjustly, falsely, if you're saying things about me that aren't true, don't you think that there's a God that you're going to have to answer to? What's the right answer? Once again, once again, Job challenges. If I'm right, you're wrong. If I'm right about this, then you're wrong about this. It really is the conversation each and every one of us have with our family and our friends. When we talk about heaven, when we talk about Jesus, when we talk about the future. Hey, what's going to happen when you die? I'm going to go to heaven. Why? Because Jesus loves me and died for me. What's going to happen to me? Let's talk about that. What is going to happen to you? As painful as Job's alienation from humanity is, and as painful as his alienation from God is, he's holding on to hope. Luther was once asked, Do you feel that you're a child of God this morning? He answered, I cannot say that I do, but I know that I am. It was Luther's way of saying, Do you always feel God's presence, God's love, God's care? God's concern. Well, praise God if you do. But if there are times when you don't, guess what? His presence, his care, his love isn't based on the presence or the absence of feeling. C.S. Lewis said, the great thing to remember is that though feelings come and go, God's love for us does not, unquote. Feelings are powerful and feelings are real. But they don't always tell us the truth. A.W. Tozer thought long and hard on the subject of trial and difficulty and he wrote, What then are we to do about our problems? We must learn to live with them until such time as God delivers us from them. We must pray for grace to endure them without murmuring. Problems patiently endured will work for our spiritual perfecting. They harm us only when we resist them or endure them unwillingly, unquote. So what do we know? God is real. What do we know? Our Redeemer lives. What do we know? That our kinsman Redeemer has redeemed us and reconciled us And he's promised us a new land and a new future. And how could he do this? Because he really is related to us. Because he's a human. And because he's God. I want you to think of the enormity of the revelation that's given by Job. Well, you must not be filled with the Holy Spirit and you must not believe in revelation. Really? I know that there is a God who tells us things about himself in his word that we can trust. Next week, chapter 20. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time. 
Thank you for your word. Lord, we understand that sometimes, because we don't see everything completely, because we don't have access to all of the information, we might experience feelings of disappointment. Feelings of disappointment with God and feelings of disappointment with each other. But Lord, we pray, we pray, we pray that we would be reluctant to trust our feelings and that we would be ever hopeful to trust what the Bible says about Jesus and about his word and the promises that are made and that the promises will be kept. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.